pull up a chair and join us at the Energy Roundtable. Welcome to Energy Roundtable. My name is Lisa Katz and I'm welcomed here today by Bill Davidson, our Director of Operations. Welcome, Bill. How are you? Doing well. Thank you very much. Good. So for those of you uh, that are listening, Energy Roundtable is really aimed at bringing the uh, the highlights really in the energy sector from a news perspective to this table. And uh, we typically bring a total of two to four articles and talk about those. Today I'll be bringing one, Bill will be bringing two. And then we go into a face-off where Mark Charbonneau, the man behind the glass, comes back to the table and challenges Bill and I to argue the pros and cons. So with that, uh, let's start. Bill, I'm going to let you go first because I have one article today, which I will try to cover uh, as best as I can. Um, so why don't you uh, you go ahead? Okay, let's do that. Um, so let's start with a uh, well, what I consider a fun one, which is AI power. So this is from Semiconductor Engineering. And uh, the headline is AI power consumption exploding. Exponential increase is not sustainable, but where is it all going? So the impetus for this article was uh, discussions from a recent design automation conference. Uh, AMD was there, did a presentation, and they produced a slide that basically showing with their current trend in increasing power requirements from machine learning systems, we're basically reaching a maxed out ridiculously high portion of the world's energy production in mm. ab- about 20 years. Wow. So, yeah, um, they, they quote a CEO that he, he made an interesting point that the driver for 100 years in the industry has been increasing efficiency. He said he had this quote, that is what drove Moore's law. We are now in an age of anti-efficiency. So if you recall Moore's law, specifically the, the number of transistors in a, in a dense integrated circuit it doubles about every two years. And in this day, it's often referred to just speeds in general, doubling anywhere from one to two years. But with respect to energy consumption, we're going the wrong way exponentially. So so why is this? Um, We're increasingly using neural networks and the networks themselves are getting exponentially larger to accommodate the type of uh, advanced features that customers have come to expect. So features like voice recognition, and recommendation engines. They're so incredibly mainstream now, and most importantly, their digital IQ is increasing faster and faster. And the expectation is that they'll continue to to do so. Um, This is a very large part of the demand, the NLP models, natural language processing models. But you also have this incredible growth of smart devices that are are part of the IoT, the internet of things, which will also soon get out of hand power-wise as well. Okay, so what what are we doing to try to reduce the power consumption? Um, the semiconductor scaling strategy it worked in the past; it will continue, but it's obviously it's not enough. So the industry is looking at alternatives to standard CPUs, standard CPUs, and and this is in the form of uh, FPGAs and ASICs, ASIC, and these are field programmable gate arrays, application specific integrated circuit. These are different processors. Like the, the latter is. It's not a general purpose processor and it's therefore much more energy efficient. And the other one, interestingly enough, are are GPUs. So GPUs are graphics processors and um, they generally require more energy than CPUs. Uh, If you're a gamer, you'll know that. But for these Mm -hmm. applications, they uh, they perform uh, each output much quicker than a CPU would. So there's a there's a big trade off there Um, in uh, machine language or sorry, machine learning language. Uh, an output's called an inference. And I'm saying that because 
they talk about training and inference. And basically in, in, um, in machine learning, you have this training part, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's the key difference between machine learning AI and traditional al algorithms. We're feeding in data, which the processors go over multiple times to uh, produce a model that will be used to produce the output, which is called the inference. And of course, that model is constantly being trained to create a better model as time goes on. So it would be natural to assume that the, the training phase requires most of the energy. But funnily enough, in practice, the inference stage requires even more simply because they're replicating it so many times. So the article has further has a discussion on using cloud versus edge computing. Um, this is a fascinating topic for a different time, maybe, but the, for the purposes of this subject, for certain applications transferring from cloud to edge, and just to say edge is local, cloud is not, uh, can literally drop your power consumption by 99% for certain applications. So obviously it's worth looking at, but you know, it's funny in, in the end, the conclusion of this particular article was that none of the mitigation strategies can get us there. So we have no current total solution. Um, I did want to bring up, like, this article doesn't broach the subject, but I'd love to discuss at some point a potential solution to this issue, which is analog AI rather than digital, meaning like, because like mm. digital, digital computers that, you know, we traditionally use rely on transistors at the base level, whereas these analog computers, they use programmable resistors, but another time, maybe. That's interesting. I'm curious, like, what do you think about the whole AI space, separate from this article, Bill? Like, what do you, what do you, what are your thoughts actually around AI? I it's, love to, I love to just hear your opinion sometimes. So. It, it's, I mean, I love it. Let, let's, you know, I'll just start there. The whole concept of um, machine learning. If you've ever seen read anything about AlphaGo, just be prepared to have your your mind blown. I I won't get into it because I could talk about it for ages, um, but. We have come so far so quickly that it's actually kind of scary. And I have I have lots of good anecdotes and stories about that. Um, but the, the good side to it is that we're just solving problems we didn't think we would get to this quickly. Things yeah. that even only a few years ago, only the human brain can really figure out. And we're way past that now. And it's yeah. just mind blowing. It's so much it's so quick, so fast, we're having a hard time even figuring what to apply it to. Right. Yeah. Like it's 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 just it's that's that's where we are. And and uh, yeah, I'm I'm really excited about it. But it's you know, it's funny, like the energy thing has been around there for a while because somebody did a calculation a while ago that just said, well, what's the ultimate goal here? Is it to get something that is akin to a human brain? It sounds kind of creepy, but but it's you know, ultimately, that's you would think that's where we're going to go. But using a digital um, neural network, uh, somebody did the math. So just counting by by uh, by notes, essentially. Right. Um, you're. Uh, you're talking about a power consumption that would be equal to a really large city just for one, mm. right? So it's not it's not practical, and that's where is sort of the uh, the topic of uh, analog computers uh, kind of comes in there. Like, well, where where does this all end? Like, like it's funny because the application seems so it, it seems so narrow at the moment. When when this really opens up, it's gonna be crazy because most of this stuff, as as I said, is for language learning and that is yeah. for the computer to be able to understand humans because the way we talk is so non-intuitive, right? Yeah. And uh, and non-algorithmic, but they're already doing really well at that. So let's let's get to the hard stuff. So anyway. Yeah. That's no, that's good. That's good. That's a great review. I, it's I, I wanted to find out what your or your personal thoughts were on AI because I remember on our last energy roundtable, I think uh, so, some so at some point during the conversation. 
the topic of you know your fridge ordering food for you knowing <laughs> knowing like how much was left of you know whatever the milk or your lettuce or who knows what right it's yeah. it's just it's a really interesting concept and you know if if we can get it right it really you know it, it could it could change things uh you know for the better or worse i guess because there's always pros and cons about that aspect as well it's such a huge topic right because like one thing that people talk about is obviously the dangers you know I, I as you know i'm not a huge fan of elon musk but it, but it's funny because in an interview where they were talking about climate change he said yeah climate change really important to do something about it but let's talk about ai right yeah. that's the thing that's the thing that keeps him awake at night and yeah. uh, and and i get it like because I, I i, I kind of feel the um the, the same way so you know uh, we need to be thinking about this stuff now. And that's just one aspect of it, like it getting out of control type of thing. Um, there's already good stories about that already, creepy stories. But um, yeah, anyway, anyway, that's that's. I'll just stop there. I, could, I, I don't want to keep going on this. <laughs> it would, it would, <laughs> we'll have to do an entire episode. But, but uh, anyway, um, oh, no, it's good. a really interesting topic. I'll, I'll revisit again, at least with the uh, with the uh, power uh, requirements in mind. Cool. No, that's, that's great. Uh, thank you very much for covering that off. Uh, so my article is from the CBC, CBC News, uh, and is titled Hydrogen Alliance Formed as Canada and Germany Signed Agreements on Exports. This is a, it's an article that I'm just trying to think of a date here. I think it was, uh, was August the 24th. So it's not brand new, but I wanted to bring it up because there's some really interesting things going on and the hydrogen space is really evolving very, very quickly. And I think this is really putting Canada on the map as far as hydrogen production is concerned. So let's talk a little bit about this from an overview perspective to start. So the agreement is basically for the production and transportation of hydrogen as a start. Uh, the target that we're working towards is initial exports for Canadian hydrogen to Germany by 2025 as the article states. And, um, you know, for, for Canada, we're looking obviously to create middle-class jobs and local growth that will help climate change, all great things. Um, the agreement is being viewed as a very important step to strengthen our bilateral economic relations and build a sustainable energy supply for the future, which is all obviously great. Um, the objective here is gonna be to use wind power from Newfoundland and the Newfoundland area to produce hydrogen for export starting in 2025. And I think if memory serves me correct, this article also states somewhere about um, there's there's two German engineering companies. I think it's E.ON, if I'm pronouncing it right, and Uniper that have signed MOUs with Everwind, which is a Canadian company. Uh, and those companies are seeking to purchase or, or seeking a purchase agreement rather for up to five hundred thousand tons of ammonia which is a chemical used to transport hydrogen so most people who saw this and who maybe are not from the space uh are questioning why we're doing this right like why are we sending it to, to germany or to europe i would call it on a broader scale and the real reason at least um you know that's that 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 europe is being threatened with right now is really the fact that they're heavily reliant on russian energy and as a result, they're trying to wean itself off Russian energy because of the, you know, the war between Russia and Ukraine. Um, if if everyone's keeping up with the energy side and what's going on in Europe as it relates to gas specifically, um, for 10 days in mid-July, Russian gas stopped flowing to Europe through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which is a huge deal. And at the end of last week, 
the flow briefly resumed through a slower, although it was slower than usual. And then on July the 25th, the flow was disrupted again, falling to about 20% of usual seasonal volumes. So there are some, there were some, there were some reasons for this. At least this is what Russia says. Whereas Europe is saying, is is that you know, are those legitimate reasons? And should we be taking it upon ourselves? to find basically our energy elsewhere. And so this is part of why this is, you know, why this this agreement was signed to some extent. Um, and what's really interesting is this is actually, like it's already in the works, this is already happening. So there is a plant located in the village of Point Tupper, Nova Scotia. It is in a very advanced stage of development and it's expected to start commercial operation in early 2025. And interestingly enough, on August the 22nd, there's a gentleman by the name of Trent Vichy, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. He is the CEO of Everwind Fuels. He purchased the tank farm that the Point Tupper Heavy and or, or Point purchased the tank farm in the Point Tupper Heavy Industrial, which is near the Hawkesbury area, for listen to this, $76.9 million. Um, so his intention, of course, is to turn into facility to produce green hydrogen and ammonia. And this is the part that was really interesting to me. This is part of an initial $1 billion in capital that he is suggesting is necessary to get the facility running, uh, which will be a combination of debt and equity. So, wow, $1 billion. Um, now, my initial thought when I read this article was, it, I was thinking, well, this is a little bit counter counterintuitive or counterproductive because here we are as, a, as Canada creating hydrogen sending this fuel over to Europe. We're addressing perhaps their issues, which is great, but what happens with Canada and what happens if you know something similar happens to us or could we advance our climate goals by keeping the hydrogen here? Hmm. So that was part of what was going on in my head and I've thought about this many times and, I, and I, as I've mentioned on Energy Roundtable a number of times before, I think it does have to be, we, we can't just be locally reliant on what we do here. It does have, we do have to get energy from different sources. And I think that's ultimately gonna be the best way for, for our for us to reach our climate um, or, or carbon neutrality goals from a global perspective. But there is actually a huge plus for us on the Canadian side. And that is that Mercedes-Benz, which of course is a German company, and the Canadian government recently signed an MOU to promote the cooperation and economic opportunities within the Canadian supply for electric vehicles. So it, it's a little bit of a pass off in a sense. Um, you know, we are we are getting something, so to speak, in return. Obviously, we are getting something, in, you know, a return for the ammonia slash hydrogen as well. But I, I'm just glad to see that because that was one aspect that I was a little bit worried about uh, initially. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a big deal. I think it's going to spur development and opportunity here. Uh, the one thing that I'm hoping, because I covered off the IRA last week, the Inflation Reduction Act, is I'm hoping that that act doesn't deter the amount of Canadian investment that is going to or or um, um, development in Canada as it relates to you know hydrogen and our own growth. Because that is a huge act, um, you know, and that that will affect U.S. Uh, investment tax and production tax credits. So, anyways, that is a hopefully a decent summary of what's yeah. happening with regards to the German and Canadian hydrogen alliance. That's great. I'm 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 glad you dove into that one because it has been in the news a lot lately, and it's uh, 
I mean, I, I'll just say I'm a, a concern for for a lot of Canadians when they when they read it. So it's people do need to get educated on it, why it's important, and diversifying is uh, like you said is is uh, diversifying on a global scale is is uh, why wouldn't we be doing that? I don't know. It just, yeah. it just seems like yeah. It's, so I it, it's funny because I when in reading about this, reading people's reactions to it, I, I guess is more uh, appropriate. Um, some of this is. Uh, some of it has been directed, uh, just a directed attack on uh, hydrogen itself, which is fine. Yeah. Like that's the, it's, it's, it sparks a conversation, which is great because people are seeing, oh, this is real. Um, and it, I, I don't know, it's, it's kind of funny because like the worst case scenario that pe- people are bringing up is that, well, what if this is just like a bridging technology? It's like, yeah, why, why, what if it is? Why is that bad? Right? Yeah. So we, we've been talking about bridging um, with nuclear, with all these things to get us to full renewables or mostly renewables at some point. So what? So anyway, yeah, uh, great job. Thank you. What, what I will say, though, I, yeah. I'm a little bit surprised, frankly, because Nova Scotia and Newfoundland are mentioned, obviously, as yeah. sort of the two main areas that this is going to you know, start to happen in terms of the actual production. I'm yeah. a little bit surprised that Quebec isn't mentioned. Mm. And I'm surprised for two reasons. Quebec has nuclear power to begin, sorry, nuclear power, uh, renewable power um, to, to begin with, and a lot of it. And their cost of electricity is very low in comparison with most of the provinces across Canada. In fact, I, I could be wrong. I'd have to double check right across, but I think it actually is the lowest, if I'm not mistaken, in you know in Canada. So, you know, if you think about the the cost to generate hydrogen, for example, through electrolysis, yes, we want it to be green hydrogen, which is coming from a renewable source, which for this for the sakes of the Nova Scotia and projects that would be coming out of Newfoundland are they're suggesting would be generated by wind energy that electricity but again you have you know a significant amount of renewable energy in Quebec and at a significant like much lower cost so that cost you know to production ratio would you know so I'm just surprised that Quebec isn't mentioned that's all and and I'm I'm a little bit surprised because I know that some of the projects that we've worked on with developers from a hydrogen context have been based out of Quebec for that very reason. So anyway, interesting. It's a great point. Maybe this will spark more of that conversation. I I, I don't know. Not yeah, really sure. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> cool. Right on. All right. And you have another article, Bill? I do. So this one is uh, it's just straight from energy.gov. And uh, it's called NREL study identifies the opportunities and challenges of achieving the U.S. transformational goal of 100% uh, clean electricity by 2035. So I just I, I like this one because it was a topical one. It's kind of a follow up um, from last week. Uh, it, discuss, it discusses a report from the uh, National Renewable Energy Laboratory that looks at feasibility of achieving the 100% clean electricity, which is the net zero power grid which is considered to be a major step to the overall zero carbon by 2050 goal. Um, The timing of this report obviously is dictated by the enactment of the IRA Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, Seems like a good time to take the temperature and assess where we are on this path to our stated carbon reduction goals. Uh, As we we stated last week with respect to the IRA, the expected uh, greenhouse gas reduction is about 40%, depending on the study. Um, and that's below tw- 2005 levels by 2030. But this number uh, is a total. If you actually just look at the power sector, the estimate is 
68 to 78% reduction, which I don't think we said last week. Um, and as we said last week, the IRA combined with the previous infrastructure law, the bipartisan infrastructure law, uh, it surely gets us on the path to those goals, but not all the way there. More legislation will be needed. We said that last week. So basically for this study, they, they defined a bunch of scenarios. They used decades of uh, previous studies that were already available to them. Uh, they ran them through their latest capacity expansion model. And these scenarios are, they're different mixes of technologies. They include up-to-date factors that are that are very different from even a few years ago, like like the greater range of storage solutions that we now have, and mm -hmm. the better the better known expected demands of electrification has also changed a lot. Um, the requirements were each scenario had to be lowest cost while maintaining safe and reliable operation, of course, at all hours. Um, and what did they find? They ran over a hundred of these, by the way. Uh, oh. For right for every scenario, it was. It was clear that we need to scale up with all the technologies faster than what we've been doing thus far. Uh, the modeled scenarios have wind and solar uh, anywhere from 60-80% of the overall generation, yeah. which is which is around three times the 2020 levels by 2035. It's about two terawatts. Yeah. Um, and that works out to 40 to 90 gigawatts of solar and 70 to 150 gigawatts of wind per year this decade. So it's a huge scale up. Uh, the model it include it also includes it includes huge rises in uh, geothermal and hydro as well. Um, they talk about storage, diurnal storage, uh, that's daily storage, in, increased by 120 to 350 gigawatts, and seasonal storage increased by 100 to 680 gigawatts. So the deployment rates have to increase significantly in all generation areas, but there's also transmission. So the capacity capacities in these scenarios increased up to three times the current capacity. Um, this is transmission capacity, which right. would, would translate so, sorry, to- Sorry, when you say transmission, you mean electrical transmission just to be act, like, yes, right? Yeah, correct. Okay. But between 1,410,100 1, miles of new high capacity lines Ooh. per year. Wow. So, assuming we start in 2026. These, these numbers are hurting my head. Um, they, they made a point to highlight that their numbers show that the benefits outweigh the cost of a net zero power grid. I thought this part was interesting because in all in all their scenarios, this was true. Uh, the additional costs from all these expansions ranged from 330 to 740 billion. Whereas when you look at the reduction of up to say 130,000 premature deaths from poor air quality, plus the avoided costs um, from climate change, the benefits are they figure in the 920 billion to 1.2 trillion range. And, and they just want to point out that this doesn't even factor in the expected cost reductions to those clean energy technologies over that span of time. So yeah. they're saying it's a it's a net, you know, we don't we don't want these people to die prematurely either, but there is a huge cost benefit. Uh, and then the article ends with, you know, four listed hurdles to decarbonizing the power sector. And those are one, I'll just, I'm just going to read it. Uh, dramatic acceleration of electrification and increased efficiency and demand. It, decarbonization in many areas means electrification, and this is growing exponentially, as we know. Um, number, two, number two was new energy infrastructure installed rapidly throughout the country, obviously, from what I just said. Generation storage and transmission all have, have to increase multiple times in, that, in this time frame, and it's going to be quite the infrastructure challenge. Um, the third one was expanded clean energy manufacturing and supply chains. You know, raw materials, manufacturing facilities, 
and work, workforce are going to be at scales that we just we just don't have. And number four was continued research, development, demonstration, and deployment support to bring emerging technologies to the market. You know, the, the consensus is that that modern technologies can get us roughly 90% there, but there's serious diminishing returns after that, which would require technologies we don't quite have yet. Anyway, my my conclusion to this thing is, well, oh boy, there's a, a lot of work to be done here. So. Yeah. So, oh my God, I, I have so much I can say and uh, and want to comment, and it, this could go so many different places. But I guess that the the key message really that you know that obviously you're getting we're getting from this article, and it's you know it's it's what most of the world really is thinking about to a, a bit large degree is where is this power going to come from, and can we get it fast enough, right. and can we support you know the um, the, the fact that, you know, we're going to need that much more and, you know, whether it's electric vehicles and things like that. So, you know, I part of me thinks like, as it relates to the vehicle piece, as an example, I, I remember going to a conference that Spark Power had put on, I think it was Spark Power, or maybe they just sponsored part of it a couple of years ago. This is way before, um, more than a couple of years ago, it's before the pandemic. And I think the gentleman's name was Tony Bell. I think I've mentioned him before on Energy Roundtable, but he was really talking about the fact that we're like in the future, yes, electric cars are going to be present, but we're actually not going to own cars anymore. And he was right. talking about like these set of Uber type services, right? Where be, because so many cars are parked for 90 to 95% of the time, what is the point? And we could easily reduce the amount of electrification that is required and park for that, right? Versus all owning cars and all plugging cars in at night and blah, 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 blah. But then there's the other side of, okay, now you have a car that takes charge and you could plug back in somewhere and then it drains that battery and consumes that electricity, right? So that it could be used in other areas of the grid. It, it's such a complex topic, everything to do with electrification, because, you know, even look at the ISO with the cell T1, right? Like the nuclear refurbishments and, and, um, and the retirement, you know, Pickering, um, you know, they're calling for like 2,500 megawatts of, yeah. of power. They need it like this, right? They're going to industry to try to find it now at this point. And there's going to be a whole mix of technologies. And some are saying, because there's a big part of it that's that's based on, we'll call it storage. Some are saying, can we even meet those requirements based on the storage uh, I will call it supply issues that the industry is facing right now as it relates to energy storage or battery energy storage systems. Yeah, there's just so many different things. And then and then you think about, again, the reliance on the gas grid and how people want to decarbonize. They, many people are thinking about electrification as the way to do that. But then there's hydrogen and natural, renewable natural gas fuels, right? There's so much to this. And uh, yeah, the, the, the topic is so complex. And, uh, but yet we do have to find a way to address this stuff pretty quickly. And I think that the IRA is gonna be one of the mechanisms that's gonna spur some of this activity. So is obviously the Alliance here with Germany we talked about today. So there's more of this that's coming. And, you know, if if what we've seen over the last two years, two or three years through the pandemic is sheds any light in terms of how aggressive or how forward, uh, you know, in terms of a, um, from a, from a speed perspective that we're going to be moving to achieve carbon neutral, uh, I, I think we're going to start to see a lot more activity and it's going to be moving at a very fast pace. So anyways, it's all very exciting for everybody that's involved in the energy space, that's for sure.
Yeah, for sure. And and I, I think the the point, the major major point coming out of that is that this is a this is a great start, but we can't keep the foot off the accelerator. We need even more legislation everywhere, yeah. um, state, provincial, uh, yeah. and, for the, and federal, to to get this to happen. So. Well, and that this whole topic might lead us actually in very nicely to our face off today. So, Mark, why don't you come back uh, and give us our face top, our face off topic, which, of course, we know um, and we can start to address the pros and cons. Hi, guys. How are you? Can you see me? We can see you. Yes. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm well, thanks. So our topic, it does actually, the, the articles and the things you guys have been talking about does sort of slide nicely into our face-off mm-hmm. topic, which is geoengineering, um, which is a topic I didn't know a lot about. So I did a, a little bit of research, and for the layman like myself, it's sort of a, a human intervention on a large scale to sort of stifle the warming of the earth or, uh, you know, climate change. Um, and uh, so a couple ways this is being done, or at least the concepts of this, uh, is trying to suck the carbon dioxide out of the sky, and so the atmosphere will, uh, you know, trap less heat, and then also um, deflecting or reflecting more sunlight away from mm-hmm. the Earth um, to avoid, you know, the warming, you know, the continuous warming of the Earth. So those are the two basic concepts. I've also read a bunch of other things. Um, Bill Gates talking about some sort of gas that they want to sort of emit into the the atmosphere to sort of um you know dumb down the rays and sort of get them trapped above the earth's atmosphere anyways so there's a lot of cool concepts out there and i thought i'd bring it to you guys and see your top your uh you know what you guys think about the whole thing and and uh so pros and cons bill i'll let you call heads or tails it's heads gotta be heads. okay always heads i guess oh so he's like and me i didn't realize that bill it is heads actually yes. <laughs> uh, no. it's been heads both for the past uh, two weeks in a row so yeah okay awesome so what do you want bro uh, uh bill pros or cons i gotta take the the con on this one okay yeah um and i'm gonna let lisa go first Oh, no. <laughs> All right, Lisa. Oh, man, I know what he's doing here. He's using this to his advantage. All right, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Okay, so maybe I'll start this off by saying I think when it comes to geoengineering, the research really falls on a little bit of a catch-22, right? Like there's this, this whole big risky thing. Is it too risky to rush? And then some scientists say it's really just too important to delay. And and just what we were talking about earlier, right? Like we need to get going with these technologies and move, move, move. And the fact that we're not doing this fast enough really kind of lends itself well to should we actually be doing something as far as, you know, geoengineering is, uh, is concerned. And in some ways, some of the things that they're talking about, they've already been done on a very natural scale. Right. So like we know that it works. So when and I, hopefully I'm pronouncing this correctly, but when Mount uh, Pinatubo, is that how you say it? Does anyone know the pron- correct pronunciation of that? Is it Pinatubo? Uh, no, Sounds but right. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. OK. In the Philippines, basically erupted in 1991, roughly 20 million tons of sulfur dioxide was injected into the stratosphere and it dispersed around the world and it caused a global temperature to drop temporarily by one degree Fahrenheit from listen to this 1991 through to 1993 that is fairly significant 
We know that you know this, the whole concept of climate change is to reduce the temperature, obviously. That's really what we're aiming for in terms of all of these technologies that we're trying to deploy. So if it works on that scale, you know, it would there be an issue to inject more sulfur, for example, or other aerosols to, to try to do this? I'm not suggesting that maybe we should do this like all gung ho and, you know, try to reduce everything in, in one uh, one shot. But I think if we were to do this in a way where we are very carefully, you know, uh, testing areas, so to speak, and we're not, again, trying to reduce the, the carbon dioxide too quickly because once you start this the problem is you you can't really go back right like you're gonna you're gonna experience potentially exponential um global warming which would certainly be a very very big issue but if you can do this on the smaller scale and learn a little bit and start to you know uh, uh grow that i think this is a, a huge huge benefit and and one of the bigger benefits certainly is from a cost perspective like we're talking about you know injecting sulfur we're talking about uh, injecting um, or, or spraying aerosols, uh, you know, to, that, that are reflecting the sun back. We're talking about boosting the growth of plankton in the oceans to absorb CO2. We're talking about growing plants and locking away carbon as they absorb and turning them into biochar that can be mixed into soil. Some of this stuff is really simple. And from a cost perspective, like look at the cost of solar PV, although it's dropping. Look at the cost of battery energy storage. Yes, it's dropping. But you know, carbon capture, utilization, and storage, and all of these technologies, and what we're trying to do to spur all of this growth. If if scientists have indicated that we need to do something, and we need to do something now, why not attack it with a bit of yes, conserve? You know, do something with your with with uh, conserving power and the use of obviously energy. Yes, do carbon capture. Yes, do get off of natural gas and fossil fuels and, and go towards this, you know, renewable technologies, but do it in combination with geoengineering. Uh, I just I think it's a, a, honestly a very fascinating and interesting space, that's for sure. And I, I think the biggest fear, if we can get away with it, is people believe that by popular popular popul making this basically a, a popular solution is going to lessen the strength of our commitment to cut emissions. And I think we need to get beyond that fear. We need to look at the data. We need to look at the science. We need to do this on a very logical basis. And uh, I think at the end of the day, you know, would it be more dangerous to do it or to not to do it? That's ultimately the question. Um, and that's my argument. All right. Right on. Good job. So. The con side, and I just wanted to be clear because you, you talked about the various types at the, be, the beginning, Mark. Um, I'm, I'm really talking about solar geoengineering here as well, um, which is we're increasing the aerosol beto, uh reflectiveness or putting something in the air, usually sulfur com compounds, as you said, aerosols to reflect sunlight um, because those are the controversial methods because actually under geoengineering there are other techniques technically that focus on the removal of co2 from the air but in my mind those are a no-brainer and they should continue to be developed and added to any climate change mitigation plan that's out there so i'm talking about the controversial ones here and i just want to start by saying it's 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 not much fun to just point at a debate topic and say well let's look at what the experts say but guess what that's exactly what i'm leading with so mm -hmm. what, what what do scientists and related fields think about the idea of solar geoengineering? And the answer is, is it's universally regarded as a very bad idea. 
Uh, public surveys as well agree with this. It's like 20% of the people that even know what it is, about 20% of it uh, agree with it. Not that the public would sway me on this, but why do experts think it's a bad idea? Well, let's start with the fact that no matter how much testing we do, and thus far it has been very little, I would actually agree um, that the with Lisa that the uh, the volcano experiment, which was run for us by nature, is probably the best thing that we have as far as um, sulfur compound aerosols go. But the problem is that is not a good experiment. It's not a very it's not a controlled experiment in any way. It's like the worst case scenario scientific experiment. You don't control any other factors. And scale wise, it's still nothing. We're, we're, we're talking about I know two years. It seems like lots a lot of energy that got that got reflected and all that. But it is nothing compared to what we're talking about because we're talking about doing this forever on the largest scale possible. Mm. Um, the, these these methods, they'll 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 be unproven at the uh, real working scale until we go and crank it up, and that would be a horrible time to discover that we made a crucial error here. We simply don't know the long-term effects. We don't know the side effects. I'm not sure anyone can guarantee immediate effects at that scale. And because we're talking about the largest scale possible for these methods, there's essentially nothing that we can do but ride it out once we reach a certain threshold. Now, and here, here's the fun part. The fun part is if even if we assume it works, it can actually end up being a far greater catastrophe. So um, since I first read about geoengineering decades ago, I remember always the point being made that there's a risk, a risk, I remind you, that once people under, understand that we have a, a mitigating technological uh, solution to the problem of climate change, they might go back to polluting at their original rates. But how naive is it to describe this as a risk? Have you even met people? You know, we, we would start cranking out CO2 like nobody's business. That's what's going to happen here. And, and why is that a problem when we have a working technical solution? Well, let me tell you. So, like, first off, the CO2 concentration would continue to skyrocket. The oceans are still absorbing what would be now a torrent of CO2. Does anyone think acidic oceans are a, are a fair compromise in this situation? I don't think so. And then secondly, let's talk about politics and reality mixed with reality for a second. We're, we're talking about technologies that cost billions of dollars and will continue to be a money sink ad infinitum. The developed world still has large political bodies of science denying rapidly libertarian constituents that will always be fighting to cut costs. If these programs lose their funding in the future after decades, maybe centuries or whatever, of an open throttle CO2 binge, what happens to the planet? I, I think we all know. So the risk benefit analysis here is not a difficult one for me. We have a basically known strategy of using mostly existing technologies for, for CO2 reduction, which does affect everyone to some degree. And it does mean that we have to all pitch in and do our part and open our minds to change. But the path is clear and is doable versus let's throw a crazy amount of money at unproven technologies with no guarantees of success and a virtual certainty that the underlying problem gets exacerbated exponentially. So it's no surprise that the people who actually know what they're talking about come down hard on the side of mitigating this problem via reduction of carbon emissions rather than a what I call a reckless Hail Mary pass with no escape route. <clears throat> I'm going to side with the pros on this one, and I think you should too. Thank you very much. <laughs> wow, <laughs> excellent. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to have to go with Bill on this one. His points were, uh, Thank you. were, were poignant, and um, yeah, I still think uh, 
we're a ways away from from uh, even indulging in this. I think it's almost like a Star Wars thing or something you'd see in a movie at this point right now. Like, it just seems too far-fetched anyways, is all yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. It's it's really interesting, and, I, and, and to be clear, I think we should be studying everything. Let's literally study everything, right? And, and these aren't the only ones. Like, it, there's, as you said, there's a bunch of them. There's like six major ones, and another one is the, uh, the seeding of the ocean with iron as well. Like, there's, there's yeah. all these things. That, yeah, so... There's, That's the uh, plankton piece. The, the, the plankton one, right? The, the yeah. fake, the fake plankton. I guess it's not fake, yeah. but whatever. Uh, yeah. Plankton substitute. Um, yeah. A anyway, cool topic. I love it, Mark. Yeah, I think yeah, this is was, something we. Sorry, we could. I was going to say we could do. We could talk about this for hours and hours. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, go ahead, Lisa. What were you going to say? No, I was going to say it was, So I was. <laughs> it's funny because I was getting ready to argue the cons. Interestingly enough, on this because it's so much easier in the sense, like not to like give it to Bill, but sure. But really, yeah. it is because the truth of the matter is we don't really know what this would do <laughs> at a large scale, right? Which is why in my pros argument, I was really trying to say. No, we have to do this kind of on a, a deliberate, like small scale approach, because yes. it, it, the, the truth of the matter is it really is irreversible. Like once you start yep. to do this, that's yep. it. Right. Yeah, and then yep. there's so many issues with regards to like, look, we're putting all these solar PV place plants in. It, it would actually reduce the ability of those facilities making the same amount of electricity because of the amount of solar rays that would actually be able to get through to those those yeah. facilities, right? So yeah. there's so many things. Yeah, and funny. I don't know, I just feel like to play with nature is really asking for trouble. Like, yeah, do you, what you yeah. can, to obviously, you know, but like to really play with nature, there's so many aspects we just probably don't understand that it's... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, it, we already be, we already ran that experiment uh, inadvertently, right? Like we we knew in yeah. 1839 back then because we were working on CO2 absorption of IR and boilers and that we knew that this was a problem. If you're just putting yeah. fossil fuels out, out there, or burning them, um, you know, 1899, Arrhenius reminded us again. Like this is this is an ongoing thing. We ran that experiment. Did we really know what was going to happen? Like we we knew that heat was going to be added to the system, but all the knock-on effects and how quickly it was going to happen. And yeah. this, what we're talking about, seems even more extreme and quicker, with with yeah. no with, with no escape valve. So yeah, anyway. yeah. <laughs> so and what's, what's, is what I meant to say. What's yeah. really interesting, I when I was looking this up to try to you know argue both points. <laughs> The but the other part that's really interesting is the oceans. Interestingly enough, could become more acidic. Like yeah. like about half of all excess CO two in the atmosphere is removed by the ocean uptake currently, yeah. and the ocean is already more than thirty percent more acidic than it was before the industrial revolution. Right. So there's that aspect to consider too, right? If you do this yeah. on a very large scale and very quickly, what yeah. effect would that have on the the acidity of the oceans, which yeah. obviously affects plant life, coral reef, and and really comes right up to humans. So it's yeah. uh. It's such an interesting topic. It really is. And so I think the moral of the story is you need to hire CEM on, on planet Earth right here to help <laughs> reduce reduce your CO2 emissions and, uh, you know, and then, then go from there. <laughs> this is why you're in marketing, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. Thanks, Mark, for the, uh, for yeah. the great topic. And, uh, and Bill, thank you very much for, uh, you. for you know, the great uh, debate. And uh, yeah, thank you very much to you both. Happy Friday to you both. I hope you both have a great long weekend and same to our listeners. This is Energy Roundtable. My name is Lisa Katz. If you'd like to uh, you know, give us a, a ping and tell us what you think of our, uh, our roundtables or suggest some uh, face-off topics or anything in between, please feel free to reach out to me directly. My email is lisa at cmeng.ca. Have a great long weekend, everyone.